I know that for many of you today, life is really hard right now for a whole host of reasons. Conflict, depression, sorrow, stress, illness, infertility, inflation, or multiple of these. If life's not that way for you right now, praise the Lord. Yet there will be times that you do face hardships like these, and right now, many around you are facing them. In the midst of these things, I think that there are three really big questions that we especially contemplate and, and struggle with about God. First, we wonder, is God really still at work? Is God really still at work, even with so much hardship in our world and in our lives right now? Second, we question, is God really in control? Or has this world spun out of his control? Has he taken his hands off the wheel? And if he is still sovereign and in control, what does that mean for our hardships? Like, is he causing them? And that leads to a third major question. Does God really care? Because sometimes it sure doesn't feel like it. So can we trust him? Does he care? And so we question God's activity, his sovereignty, and his love. And at the least, this leads to confusion. Worse, it leads to bitterness against God. And I believe that God's word can speak into these difficult experiences and questions and emotions if we let them, if we listen today. So I invite you to do so today as we open to a, a short, ancient, powerful story together. The book of Ruth, the Old Testament, if you haven't already. The page number is there on the screen, page 222, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. And if you're not and you're trying to find it, you get past Joshua, Judges, you find Ruth. If you go to 1st, 2nd Samuel, you've gone too far. But Ruth has been called the most beautiful short story ever written. It's quite the claim. We don't know who wrote it. It's some ancient narrator, possibly a woman, in fact. But it's not just any story either. It comes at a, a pivotal moment of history for God's people. And it's, a, it's also a love story. Like Ruth has it all. Drama, tragedy, despair, hope, triumph, romance. Like, guys, if you're looking for something nice to do for the ladies in your lives soon, forget about Downton Abbey, just bring them to church. <laughs> but even if you're like my kids and you don't care for romance at all, don't worry. Ruth still has plenty to say to all of us because at its root, Ruth is a story about God. Set within God's grand story of redemption in which we find ourselves even today. As he moves us from hurt and despair to hope and deliverance. Okay, so let's look together. Verse 1 
begins the story with some important context. It says, in the days when judges ruled. Stop right there. In the days when judges ruled. The time of the judges was a notorious one. A bit of a, a wild west for Israel's history. Following the deaths of Moses and Joshua, and Israel gets caught in this cycle of, of sin and then judgment and then repentance and restoration then back to sin again. Judges were people that God raised up to lead and often rescue Israel in those days. And the final verse in Judges, if you look at the page right before this, sums up the era really well. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In this time of rampant lawlessness and social chaos and religious backsliding and violent invasions, Ruth stands out in contrast as a, a quiet, small-town story of an ordinary family. But behind the scenes of this small-scale story, God was doing something huge, something that would alter the course of Israel's history on a massive scale. Pastor John Piper explains that from all outward appearances, God's purposes for righteousness and glory in Israel were failing. But what the book of Ruth does for us is give us a glimpse into the hidden work of God during the worst of times. The worst of times are not wasted globally, historically, or personally. When you think he is farthest from you or has even turned against you, the truth is that as you cling to him, he is laying foundation stones of greater happiness in your life. And God still does this now. On top of all the societal turbulence of the day, our story starts out in the midst of another crisis says, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from, the, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So you get a little bit of the story there. Elimelech and his family were essentially refugees from a famine in Israel. They're from Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread. But there's a bread shortage in the house of bread. So they feel they have to move to Moab. Now, some scholars suppose that this was a wrong, even sinful move for Elimelech leaving the promised land and going to this foreign, idolatrous land of Moab. It's possible. But that's also pure speculation. We simply aren't told as much. And let's admit that in our time and place, we do not know what it means to experience famine. We say we're starving when we miss a meal. Not even close to reality. True famine can be excruciating, filled with hunger, pain, anxiety, and death. So, 
It's be a bit slow to judge someone who felt a need to move to even survive. Besides, for all we know, Elimelech could have been a pretty good guy. His name hinted at this, at least. See, in Israel, names had very significant meanings, and we're going to see this in Ruth over and over again. And Elimelech meant, my God is king. Now remember, this is a time when there was no king in Israel. God was meant to be their king. And to Elimelech, his name testifies that his ruler was indeed the Lord. Now, did he still believe that and cling to that in the middle of a famine? I don't know. Regardless, though, this is a significant reminder for us, right at the outset of Ruth, that God is the king. But Elimelech's story was about to get much more tragic. Verse 3 continues, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Just in case you thought the story was Elimelech, no. (laughs) Not about him. But now we've got this immigrant or refugee widow in an unfamiliar foreign land trying to make ends meet, care for her two sons on her own. Many of you here know what it's like to be an immigrant or a refugee in a new land, maybe Canada, and how difficult it can be to to navigate a new culture and new systems and new languages and new relationships all the while missing your familiar homeland and family and friends there. Now, add to that losing the love of your life to death during that time. You get a very quick glimmer of light in verse 4 with a pair of brides for Naomi's sons. It says, These took Moabite wives... The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, weddings, you think there are occasions for celebration. Marriages give them some hope, but not so fast. Because their joy would be short-lived, and their hopes would be dashed. It says they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So now this family of four that set out from Bethlehem is down to one. And it's pretty cold, isn't it? Like these terse facts. Here our storyteller describes this ten-year nightmare in three brief verses. And I believe that this part of the story, as well as some of what will follow, gives us a surprising truth, a hard-to-accept truth, but a truth nonetheless that we need to see, and that is that at times the Lord works in bitterly difficult ways. At times, the Lord works in bitterly difficult ways. Now, these verses don't state that explicitly. In fact, the Lord's not even mentioned yet. And some would reject this idea out of hand, saying, hey, listen, Satan may have been at work here. Sin and death were at work. 
natural causes and disasters were at work, but God couldn't have been in that. Yet I believe he was. And I think that the true, this truth will become clearer as we go on. At, at a bare minimum, this story will show us that God can work through the worst tragedies to bring about long-term good that we never would have seen coming. Nearly 20 years ago, when the tsunami hit the Indian Ocean, David Hart wrote an article that claimed this. When confronted by the sheer savage immensity of worldly suffering, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. You get what he was trying to say, but I believe he was flat out wrong. Because the fact that God is in control even over tragedy is the only truth that can provide any comfort or hope. Because if he is not in control, who or what is? Nothing? Uh, does that mean we be at the, the mercy of the whims of impersonal, chaotic forces? Yay. <laughs> or maybe we're in control of our own destinies. Good luck with that. Or maybe Satan's in control. That's not comforting at all. No, as John Piper says again, when the world is crashing in, we need assurance that God reigns over it all. Even or especially over the bitterly difficult things that happen. Jim and Veronica Bowers and their two children were missionaries in Peru in the early 2000s. One day, their plane was misidentified as a drug smugglers and shot at. Veronica and their baby were killed instantly by a single bullet. Jim, their son, and the pilot miraculously survived this crash landing. And no more than a week after this tragedy, Jim spoke at the funeral and said these remarkable words. Most of all, I want to thank God. He's a sovereign God. I'm finding that out more now. Some of you might ask, why thank God? Could this really be God's plan for our family? Well, I'd like to tell you why I believe it is so. And he went on to list not one, not two, 15 different reasons that he could see of how God was at work. And those are just the ones he could see. How about the thousands he couldn't see? In the aftermath of Naomi's tragedy, she may have seen no good coming out of her pain. 
maybe likely didn't see any good. They had to, to flee the promised land because of famine. They had to live in pagan Moab where her husband tragically died. Her sons had to marry foreign wives, which isn't forbidden or condemned here, but likely still carried a stigma and a fear of God's opposition. Her new daughters-in-law apparently went childless over a decade, and childlessness was often assumed to be a curse from God in that day. No children, no descendants, your name stops with you. And then, not one, but both of Naomi's own sons died, apparently quite young. She's left without the provision or protection of a husband or son in a male-dominated culture. Like, when women were widowed in that day, when a woman was widowed, she usually had three options. She could return to her parents' home, her own parents' home, she could remarry, or she could depend on her own children. Because of Naomi's age, poverty, and bereavement, she had none of these options. Blow after blow, sorrow after sorrow, hopeless. Like, what when the world was God doing? You might have thought, like, God must have been angry at Elimelech or his sons or Naomi, right? Like, if anything, she probably felt like God's judgment was hanging over her for whatever reason. Talk about a, a gloomy setting. This lonely, grieving, aged widow sits abandoned in a foreign land. But she's not totally alone or abandoned yet, is she? That might, uh, it's, uh, we read this and we go, well, at least she had her daughters-in-law. Might not seem like much. Small comfort, for now, at least. But in verse 6, we get this change of scene as Naomi decides to head home to Judah. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So at the first mention of the Lord in Ruth, we finally get some good news. The famine is finished. God himself put an end to it. And God visited his people. God came to their aid. God gave them food. She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you suppose Israel deserved this visit from God? Were they a, a shining beacon of goodness that the Lord just wanted to reward? <laughs> Don't think so. This was a grace from God. He was showing his kindness to them. As scholar Robert Hubbard explains, Yahweh's gracious intervention reminds the reader of his intimate involvement in the lives of his people, and in practical ways too. Modern urbanites, that's us, living far from farmers' fields, would do well to remember that ultimately God, not the grocer, stocks their shelves. Further, his watchful eye looks equally after simple peasant exiles and kings and priests in palaces and temples. In Naomi's case, one wonders what ball Yahweh has set rolling by this gift. The plot has begun to thicken. 
And already, we see the other side of God's work in the midst of our lives. So not only does he sometimes work in bitterly difficult ways, but we need to remember that also, at times, the Lord works in graciously kind ways. And oftentimes, he's working both ways at the very same time. But let's focus here for a bit. At times, the Lord works in graciously kind ways. So, Naomi hears the famine's ended. She feels this desire to return home. Now, this chapter talks about returning home nine times. It's clearly a theme. So, she sets out for home. Interestingly, her daughters-in-law decide to go with her. And verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But soon after that, Naomi maybe reconsiders taking them away from their own homes and says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, the word used there for kindly, may the Lord deal kindly with you, that becomes a theme in the book of Ruth. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to covenantal love, loyalty, or kindness. It's often translated as steadfast love or loving kindness in our Bibles. See, there's a kind of love that that we feel instinctually for our blood relatives, family members like our kids, or for people like ourselves, or for our homeland, or for things that we create. It's this natural love. Like we have to choose to not love those people or things. And then there's a kind of love that we choose to commit to, whether or not it's natural, like the covenantal love between a husband and a wife. On my wedding day, I may have felt like I couldn't help but love my bride. However, at the same time, I was making a choice and a vow to love her until death do us part. Like every day from then on, no matter how lovable she was or was not, I was committed to love her. And she did the same. That's another level of love. And that's the kind of love that God says he has for his people. Like he didn't merely love his people as his creations, his children, or his friends. He loved them as a husband vows to love his wife, no matter what. Like no matter what, he would show them said. He would be gracious to them and kind to them. Naomi says here that not only is God kind, but that Ruth and Orpah had shown this kind of kindness to her as well. And it, and it was her parting prayer that God would be graciously kind to them as they depart. Go, 
Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house in, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. It says she hoped they'd find rest with new husbands and new homes. And then you can just sense the emotional weight as they all start weeping together. Obviously, they had grown extremely close over the last decade. Their bonds went deep. And Naomi is not the modern stereotype of an aggravating mother-in-law. <laughs> and her in-laws were not outlaws. She addresses them as her own daughters who love each other. But no matter how painful it was, Naomi thinks that they, they have to part ways now. They likely never see each other again but it would be for the best. But then as they all wipe away tears, Ruth and Orpah decide otherwise. In verse 10, it says, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. It doesn't have to be that way. We're going with you. I think by this point we can maybe start to see one of the main ways that God shows gracious kindness to us. He works in graciously kind ways, often through people, through other people. Like he was clearly showing hesed to Naomi through her daughters-in-law, and he had for years. And now, when she was at her lowest he providentially placed these people around her who could show her the loyalty and love that she needed right then. Have you found that to be true? Obviously, there's countless ways that God can show grace to us, and he does. But one of the main ones is through the kindness of other people. Like when you're at your lowest, he'll often strategically place others around you who will be there with you, who will hold you and cook for you and listen to you and, and weep with you. Don't overlook the evidence of the Lord's kindness to you in that. And if you know someone who is hurting, don't underestimate the difference you can make by simply showing up in those times, being an agent of God's kindness to them. Out of concern for Ruth and Orpah, Naomi still resisted their kindness. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out 
against me. So this is a, a carefully crafted argument from Naomi. She intends this to be indisputable, referring to a, a cultural and legal custom of the day of, of widows remarrying within the family. Naomi first asks, Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons. It's like, if, like I'm too old. I'm not popping out any more babies. Then she essentially says, even if I could get married today and get pregnant tonight, I'd still have to give birth to a son and then have more than one of them. And then you'd have to wait until they grew up. And then you'd be too old, like me. <laughs> In other words, even if the impossible happened, they'd be foolish to stick with her. Quick side note. This passage does not disparage singleness or childlessness at all. Unfortunately, widows' fortunes were simply so tied to marriage in that day that Naomi's concern was totally legitimate. If Ruth and Orpah followed her, they would likely end up impoverished, insecure, foreign outcasts in Israel. And she says there at the end, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's exceedingly bitter. She's miserable in her suffering. But she hates even more that others she love she loves would suffer because of her. It's for your sake I'm so miserable. And here, she actually puts the responsibility for her suffering on God. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. From Naomi's perspective, it felt like God was attacking her as her enemy. And that was actually Naomi's strongest argument yet. Basically, if God is after me, you don't want to be anywhere near me. It's like Jonah to the sailors. You should throw me overboard to save yourselves. Or like Gandalf to the fellowship. Fly, you fools. However, by holding God responsible... Naomi recognized that God was involved in it all. And therefore, despite appearances, if God is at least involved, he can fix things as well. As one scholar put it, bitter complaint cloaked firm faith. He still had some faith in there. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So one of them finally listens to reason, kisses Naomi goodbye. Now, don't assume that Orpah was wrong here. Scripture doesn't criticize her at all. As Orpah disappears from the plot, she just highlights how extraordinary Ruth acted. 
In contrast to the, the sensible and expected, Ruth did the incredibly unexpected. It says Ruth clung to her. Clung is the same word used to describe leaving and cleaving in a marriage in Genesis. Ruth was fully committed to Naomi. It's intense loyalty. I'm not letting go. And in this, Ruth models courageous, sacrificial, risk-taking, adventurous faith. Naomi makes one final appeal in verse 15, urging Ruth to return home for a fourth time. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. It might cock an eyebrow at Naomi encouraging them to return to false gods. But this never says Ruth, that Naomi is totally in the right here. She's not. She's in despair. Like nothing else matters. Just go home. But it's right then that Ruth makes her most remarkable and famous statement. It's like, stop telling me to leave. Stop trying to talk me out of this. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. If she hadn't before, Ruth really renounces her native land and religion and adopts Naomi's here. And from then on, she's sticking with her. And she makes five commitments to say so. Where you go, I'm going. Where you lodge or wherever you stay, I'll stay there. Where your people are going to be my people, your God, Yahweh. He will be my God. And I'll stick with you even till death. Like, I want a, a plot in the family graveyard. Despite this meaning, likely perpetual widowhood and childlessness, Ruth sticks with Naomi. Naomi painted this bleak, really dark picture of the future. But Ruth didn't run away. Ruth takes her hand and walks with her into it. I think the most amazing commitment of all was that your God will be my God. Like, think about it. Naomi doesn't sound like a great evangelist here at all. God's my enemy. Go back to your gods. <laughs> and yet, despite their hardships... Despite Naomi's bitterness, Ruth decides to put a stake in the ground and say, I want your God. I want your God. Her commitment that day was decisive, total, and permanent. In a way, 
Ruth's commitment to Naomi foreshadows the commitment we must make to Jesus. Like to be Jesus' disciple requires being more committed to him than to any earthly family or community or land or nation. And true followers of Christ go all in on Jesus without looking back. Decisively, totally, and permanently until death. And then even beyond death into the afterlife. Like we can follow Ruth's example of faith and decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. Like Ruth, we are outsiders who don't merit inclusion into the family of God. But as we give him ourselves, he accepts our commitment, seals it with his spirit. And like Ruth, we can then graciously pour out our lives for the sake of others, putting their needs and desires above our own, regardless of what state they're in. However, far more than seeing our commitment to Jesus in Ruth, we should more clearly see his commitment to graciously love us. Listen to how Ian Dugid puts it. He says, Tremendous asset that she will prove to be, Ruth is not the final answer to Naomi's needs. Ruth is simply a pointer to the gospel. The gospel answers our doubts that God really has our best interests at heart. Who left his father's house to come and live with us even to the point of death? Jesus is the answer Naomi needs. And Jesus is the answer that we need. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He took God's declaration that I will be with you and lived it out to the fullest extent. He left the glories of heaven in order to say to us, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And even death was not shirked in his identification with us. He died and was buried just as we are. In his grace, he has clung to us, uniting our souls with his in eternal union. I hope that you can truly see his said love for you today and that you won't resist it. You won't push it away. Long before you choose to follow him, he chose to come and save you. And in his kindness, he is calling you to repentance today, to leave behind your sin, leave behind your shame, and to cling to his mercy and grace. So make today the day that you put your stake in the ground and you stake it all on Jesus. Because he will never let go of you. No matter what happens along the way. We'd love to help you with that if you need help, so please come talk to us after the service. But put your stake in the ground today. We see here Ruth's resolve was unwavering. So Naomi gave in, in verse 18, says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Either in resignation or reassurance, 
Nomi falls silent, stops arguing, maybe stops talking altogether. But don't miss it. Like in, in Ruth's kindness, God was already starting to deal with kindly with Naomi again. At times, the Lord works in graciously kind ways through other people, and he was using Ruth to give Naomi a taste of his own covenant faithfulness and kindness. And he can do the same to you. And through you to others. If you come to know God's love in Jesus, you become free to radically love like Ruth. And if God calls you to, you'll be okay if you lose family or friends or homes or wealth. You can leave them all behind if you have to because Jesus is easily worth it. He can also give you the strength to to stick with commitments that you've already made. Sticking with a, a spouse through difficulty. Sticking with a, a Christian friend through their pain. He can do that in you. Verse 19 continues. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Been over a decade. Suddenly Naomi shows up, town starts buzzing. Old friends, acquaintances are excited. Hey, is that Naomi? I almost didn't recognize her. Hey, did you hear Naomi's home? What, really, Naomi? Oh, that's great. However, they got an unexpected mouthful spat back at them. Verse 20, Naomi said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? How real is that? If you have experienced deep sorrow in life, you know that the journey to healing is not some straight upward ascent. No, it's up and down and back and forth, this emotional roller coaster. Some days you feel like you're getting better. Other days you're right back to weeping. This is real stuff. But... What's with Naomi's requested name change? Well, Naomi's name meant lovely or pleasant. But as she heard her name being chattered about, she thought, you know, my life has not turned out pleasant. It's gotten super bitter. In fact, stop calling me that, pleasant. Ha! Nothing could be further from the truth. Call me Mara. It means bitter. She doesn't hesitate again to, to lay the blame at God's feet. Four times, in fact. 
It says, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me, dealt bitterly with me. She calls God the Almighty or Shaddai here, which emphasizes his sovereign power. Nothing in Ruth is seen as outside of God's control. He's Almighty. Nothing here is, is attributed to chance. And again, we're brought back to that first point, that at times the Lord works in bitterly difficult ways, as hard as it can be to swallow or understand, like, I, like any other possible source of calamity besides the Lord is a far scarier prospect. As hard as it is to grasp, I sure hope that my troubles come from God. Because otherwise it means God is not in control and I can't trust him at all. I would much rather my loving, kind, faithful Father in heaven be calling the shots than chance or fate or the devil or other people or me. Think of it this way. God being in control means that abusers, bullies, cancers, and death are not in control. That's good news. There is no one else in existence that I can entrust my life to, difficulties at all. Like, I don't blame you if you struggle with this. And when you do, I encourage you, take it to God. Take it to God. You pray the, the Psalms of lament to God. Be honest with him. Don't curse him. But cast all your cares and concerns and complaints on him. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. And if you ever doubt that he cares for you or loves you, or if you ever doubt his ability to turn even the, the worst, most bitter tragedies around, don't forget that the cross of Christ was the most bitter thing that anyone has ever experienced. And yet, God went through it himself out of love, so you never have to. And through the cross, through his resurrection, he has worked the most gracious and kind good ever seen, turning it all completely around. Despite Naomi's fairly accurate theology, she still rather, was rather blind to her reality here. It says, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Was that really true? Like, did she really come back with nothing? Completely empty. What about Ruth? The Lord has brought me back empty. Not so, Naomi. 
Pastor David Platt says, In his sovereign design, God ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. There are times when we think God is far from us, when everything seems foreign, when death strikes and the pain will not seem to go away, when despair sinks in amidst loneliness, amidst barrenness, in our grief, in our shame. But when we think that God is far from us, we can know that God will show himself faithful to us. Naomi is saying, I am empty, I have nothing. Little does she know that standing right beside her in a Moabite daughter-in-law is the fullness of God. And in this moment when she thinks God is completely gone and far from her, in that moment God is actually laying the foundation for the greatest demonstration of his faithfulness to her. And he does the same for us time and time and time again. And this all leads to one final thought I think we need to see before we close. Yes, at times the Lord works in bitterly difficult ways. And yes, at times the Lord works in graciously kind ways, sometimes at the same time. But we can rest assured in this final truth as well, that at all times, at all times, the Lord's work is sovereignly ongoing. At all times, the Lord's work is sovereignly ongoing. Look how this chapter concludes with a summary of what just happened as well as a hint that this is not the end of the story. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What's so special about a barley harvest? Well, Harvests were associated with joy and provision and fullness. So this is something quite different than what we've seen so far. Something new, something hopeful. I can sense the author smirking a bit as they wrote this. What a coincidence. <laughs> they got home right in time for the barley harvest. To see what that'll entail, you'll need to come back next week unless you cheat and read ahead. <laughs> but for today, as we sit and wait in the tension of Naomi's trauma and pain and bitterness and sometimes feel the same ourselves, let's also remind ourselves that we know the story can't end there. with a sovereign God who loves us, the bitter journey home can never be the true end of the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our pain and difficulties and struggles today. You know